Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey, it's Glenn Washington from Snap Judgment. And if you love what you're hearing, and I know you love what you're hearing, please consider becoming a KQED member special access to cool events behind the scenes footage and so much more plus you'll sleep better at night knowing you did your part for the community you depend upon it's in you please be in it visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to sign up now that's podcast with an s thanks from kqed From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. For the past four decades, Americans' food habits have been changing rapidly and not for the better. Some 40% of Americans are now considered obese, and the author of a new book points to the food industry as largely to blame. In his new book titled Hooked, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Moss describes how big food companies use salt, sugar, and fat, along with slick ads and packaging, to literally addict us to eating too much of the wrong foods. Michael Moss joins us for the hour on Forum right after this news. Good morning and welcome to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer. Well, in times of stress, like, well, like right now, a lot of us turn to foods that might not be the best for us. You know, a bag of chips, fast food, cookies, or soda, all of them loaded with salt, fat, or sugar. Well, in his new book titled Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Michael Moss describes how big food companies turn our own biology against us, using ingredients, marketing, and more to get us literally hooked on unhealthy foods. And Michael Moss is with us now. Welcome to Forum. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, happy to have you. So I, there's a whole lot packed into that title, but I want to begin with the last word, which is addictions. And I wonder, how do you, in thinking about this topic, how do you define addiction or addicted well and to step back a second i mean if you had suggested to me you know five years ago when i started this this project that that you know oreo cookies could could be as addictive as heroin i would have thought that's like totally not so but one of the things i did sort of as, as part of looking at that question can we really look at some of these these food products like we can alcohol and tobacco and and, and drugs was to look at how the definition of addiction has changed over the years. And it used to be kind of very convoluted, complicated. You had to have a bunch of things happening for for experts to call something addictive, including like withdrawal symptoms and tolerance limits, et cetera. But, but then I kind of came across the tobacco industry. And, and if you recall, it for decades vehemently denied that smoking was addictive. And then in the year 2000, for various reasons, the biggest company of all, Philip Morris, completely flipped around and said, you're absolutely right. Smoking is addictive. In that same year, the CEO of the company was asked in some legal proceedings to 
define addiction? He goes, he goes, addiction is a repetitive behavior that some people find difficult to quit. And I thought that was like, it was such a moment for me because at the time, Philip Morris was not only the biggest tobacco manufacturer, it was also the biggest manufacturer of processed food because it it bought the old company General Foods and then Kraft and then Nabisco, which made Oreos, among other things. And so I, I thought that definition from you know, arguably one of the biggest experts on addiction um, was was perfectly qualifying its own food products and much of what we find in the grocery store as as arguably being as addictive as 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 I say, you know, smoking, alcohol and, and some drugs. But in the book, you argue that it isn't just like a habit that you can't uh, break, which I guess you could say is an, uh, is an addiction like cocaine. But describe what happens in our brains when we bite into, say, a potato chip or an Oreo cookie or something like that. Yeah, so potato chip is, is actually kind of really perfect because the previous book that I wrote was called Salt, Sugar, Fat because I focused on those three ingredients as this unholy trinity, if you will, and on which the industry sort of gets us to love their products and want more and more. Um, so to go through the potato chip, right, on, on the surface of the chip, you have salt. The industry calls that the flavor burst because it's typically the first thing that touches the tongue, hits the taste buds, which sends a signal to the reward center of the brain, which gets the brain really excited and is going to be telling you, wow, I love that. Let's have more of that. Um, potato chips also have kind of the classic formula in snack foods of having 50% of the calories and fat, um, which the industry calls the mouthfeel, because that gets picked up by the trigeminal nerve that comes down from the roof of the mouth, also goes to the reward center of the brain. It's that, you know, it's that feeling more of a taste of biting into a hot, melted, toasted cheese sandwich. And you can tell I'm more of a fat and salt guy because <laughs> my brain is lighting up as we're just kind of talking about that. But, but what I didn't know until spending time with nutritionists, those, but potato chips are also kind of classically sugary in the form of the potato um, starch turning into, glu into glucose in our body. And so you kind of have like all three of those hmm elements going on in the yeah. um, in the chips to you know in combination to get the brain excited yeah well you know as i was thinking about this show it just occurred to me in fact i tweeted about it uh, about an hour ago i remembered this old potato chip ad for lay's <sighs> potato chips and i actually uh, called it up on uh youtube to play a little bit of it and this is just to set it up so this is I think it's the actor Burt Lahr who played the cowardly lion uh, in The Wizard of Oz. And he's approached by a kid who's dressed like a devil with a bag of chips. And here's just the tagline of the ad. Lay's potato chips. So light. So thin. So crisp. You can eat a million of them. But nobody can eat just one. Another flavor favorite from Frito-Lay. Delicious. That is actually the point, isn't it? <laughs> that uh, yeah, you can't yeah, yeah. eat just one. <laughs> no, I actually tracked down the ad agency and the, and the copy editor who came up with that slogan. Um, it didn't. Uh, it didn't take very long. I mean, it's like one of those you know brilliant moments on Madison Avenue where they come up with something so perfect and it's it's so obvious right in front of them. But but kind of in a more sinister mode. They were playing with us even back then in a way they're playing with us now and almost like, you know, almost like saying, you know, daring us to be able to sort of keep in control of our habits, which is which is really kind of the big point here. I mean, for so many people, 
these food products are so are so perfectly engineered to get us to want more and more that it's not a matter of free will. It's not a matter of personal responsibility when we lose control. Hmm. You talk about the feel of the potato chip, and in the book you describe how it sort of just melts on your tongue, and you just like, oh, that was good, that was easy, I'll have another one. Um, but there's also uh, a neurotransmitters involved, right? It's not just the feel on your tongue. Yeah, no, absolutely. And so what are the whole, so, so again, and you know, five years ago, you know, Twinkies like heroin, forget about it, but I'm actually convinced that in, in many ways these food products are even more problematic than drugs. And one of those ways is speed. Speed is a hallmark of addiction, right? Experts know that the faster an addictive substance hits the brain, the more apt the brain is to tell you to go and the stop part of the brain goes to sleep and doesn't help you out. Again, sort of a lack of free will. Well, there's nothing faster than what I call sort of fast groceries or fast food in the way that it hits the brain because it plays a little trick. And so when you play something like, you know, that has salt, sugar, fat in it or chocolate, for example, touches the taste, but it doesn't go directly to the brain. It sends that signal to the brain um, um, indirectly through, through, through our own neurological system. And, and so some, some scientists did an experiment a while back where they sat people down and said, look, we want to measure how fast sugar gets to the brain. When you taste sugar on your tongue, and we're going to put a little bit on there, I want you to push a button. And so they put a little sugar in their tongue. Um, and that sugar sent the signal to the brain, which sent a signal back to the finger to push the button in less than one second. I think the average was seven or eight tenths of a second compared to cigarette smoke, which can take as much as 10 seconds to fully activate the brain and alcohol and drugs can be sort of somewhere in between there. So so in terms of speed. Nothing is more powerful than um, than these food products and, and arousing the brain, I including things like opioids or even heroin. Yeah, I mean, again, so so one caveat there is that when brain scientists that spend a lot of time with them do brain scans of people um, on kind of harsher drugs like opioids, they will activate and release a flood of dopamine in the brain, which is a sort of our own natural chemical that gets us excited about things and motivates us to do things in, you know, in, in a volume that food doesn't approach. Right. So in that sense, those drugs especially are more powerful. But but here's the thing that in fact, it was Nora Volkow, the head of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, sort of explained to me that when it comes to food and eating, you know, we actually don't need that much motivation to sort of grab those products. You know, it's it's legal. It's really cheap. It's it's everywhere in our face. And so food doesn't need to activate the brain as much as those drugs in order to get us to act compulsively. Yeah. One of the things you write in the book, uh, in, in the section about addiction, and I'm quoting here, we simply haven't had anywhere near the time we would need vis-a-vis -vis evolution to catch up with the dramatic changes in food and our eating habits of the past 40 years. We are mismatched to the food of today. Uh, describe what you mean. Say what you mean about that. Yeah, that was such a huge moment for me when I spent time with evolutionary biologists who have who have looked at how our relationship to food has changed over the years. And and one of them, Dana Small, 
who was trained up at McGill in, in, in Canada and now is at, at Yale, sort of said to me, she was she was pushing back a little bit on kind of the addiction notion. She said, look, Michael, it's it's not so much that food is addictive, it's that we by nature are drawn to food and the companies have changed the nature of our food in the past 50 ways, 50 years in, 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 in a manner that we haven't been able to catch up to. So, so for example, I mean, by nature, we love food that is cheap, meaning it requires less energy expenditure on our part. It makes total sense when we were in hunter-gatherer societies that rather than chasing down an antelope for dinner, we would just grab that aardvark sitting there and eat that <laughs> because it meant less energy expenditure. And so what do the companies do now? They use chemical laboratories um, to mix and match the chemical ingredients in these food products in order to drive the cost down, knowing that knocking you know, 10 cents off a box of toaster pastries um, will get us excited and want us to buy that product. Um, we, by nature, are drawn to food that has a lot of variety. It's why humans were able to spread around the world and you know, and live in places where the only thing they could get excited about was eating whale blubber, for example, <laughs> right? Which they do. Um, so what do the companies do? I mean, that's why you walk into the cereal aisle and there's 200 versions of sugary starch breakfast cereal there because they know that we get excited by nature, by, uh, by, by variety. And then maybe one of the biggest ways that they're exploiting our own sort of natural relations with food is calories, right? Mm. Um, calories used to be a life and death thing for us. Um, the more calories you could get could, could mean that your brain could grow, your, your, you, know, you could get through hard times, you could have more children, you could put on more body fat, which was a very good thing. Yeah. Michael, so hold, the hold that thought. I'm sorry to interrupt you. We're coming up on a break. You can probably hear the music. Uh, hold that thought. We will come back to that. We're going to continue our conversation with Michael Moss. His new book is called Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Give us a call, 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. Or get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, and my guest this hour is Michael Moss. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning investigative reporter, and his new book is titled Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. What are your questions about food cravings and addiction? How has the pandemic changed your relationship to food? Give us a call right now, 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Or if you prefer, you can get in touch with a comment or question on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum, or email us. It's forum at kqed.org. 
Michael, you were talking about uh, the importance of variety uh, as we got into the break. And again, apologies for uh, interrupting you there. But, you know, one of the things you talk about in the book is uh, M&Ms and how, of course, they have a variety of flavors, uh, colors, not flavors. And uh, there was an experiment you describe in which people were given, I think, maybe five or six different colors. And then another group was given 10 different colored M&Ms. And the group that had more variety, of course, ate a whole lot more of them. Um, How does that work in the brain? Um, brain gets excited by information, and when it sees something new, um, it wants that something new. Um, it's, it's, it's also known as the smorgasbord effect, and we probably all experienced that. You're going down the line, your plate is full, maybe it's even your second trip down the buffet table, right? You're full even possibly, but you see that new, next you know, new exciting thing, and you're going to put it on your plate and, um, and be apt to at least try to stuff it, stuff it in there. Um, so... So it's that it's that sense of newness that the brain gets excited by and also just kind of our our natural instinct to want to overeat. Right. So we're built to overeat. And I was also talking about calories. Um, We have sensors in our gut, possibly even in our mouth that can tell the brain how many calories are coming in, um, which may be even more important than salt, sugar, fat in terms of the, the things that sort of drive our consumption habits, eating habits. Um, and so what and because, again, importantly, calories was life or death for much of our existence. Um, but today, one of the hallmarks of these fast groceries, fast food, junk food, if you will, that we're talking about is that they are loaded with calories, so many in a way that um, our brain hasn't caught up to as being a negative thing rather than a than, than a positive thing. Yeah. And, and uh, of course, one of the, the more brilliant parts of the M&M story, too, is that I remember a few years ago, they had a contest uh, and invited consumers to pick a new color for them, for M&Ms. And I think they settled on blue. <laughs> but boy, what a great way to engage your customers and their addiction at the same time. Yeah, you know, there's something really fascinating about about why it is we don't look at these food products more skeptically like we do cigarettes um, or, or some drugs. And I, there's just, the, you know, the industry has spent so many years making them fun through the use of cartoons and through the use of targeting kids with advertising. So they develop kind of this lifelong love for these products that when they do kind of cute things like that, we tend not to kind of step back and, and see the sinister side of it. Yeah. Um, I'm going to take some phone calls in a minute. Again, the number to call is 866-733-6786. Jim writes, should we consider Starbucks coffee an addictive food? And by coffee, I mean he writes the calorie-laden lattes and specialty drinks that Starbucks sells. Of course, there's a lot of sugar and fat in those, but there's also the, you know caffeine itself, which some feel is addictive. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I personally am looking at things and, and the word addiction for things that are problematic. So if caffeine is problematic for somebody, if they're getting too much of it, if their doctors advising them against it, if they're if they're having negative effects from from that caffeine and it's something that they're having trouble controlling, cutting back on. Then yeah, you can you know by the, by the definition of Philip Morris, that would be something that would be an, an addictive substance that that they need to be looking at carefully or, or or struggling in some way to sort of deal with. Although those frappuccinos or whatever they're called uh, have a lot of sugar and a lot of calories. 
Well, right. So, yeah, you mentioned that, too, is if you're talking about black coffee, caffeine versus the frappuccino, absolutely, totally loaded with calories. And and not only that, but then you walk into Starbucks and there's the pastry case sitting right there, too. And so, you know, that, that, and that raises a really interesting question because I spent some time with a scientist who's been crawling in our brains looking at how we respond to food. And he, he's come up with some really fascinating discoveries, which is like, for example, as we gain weight, we become more vulnerable to advertising because the brain gets more excited just by seeing um, a billboard for an ad or seeing food or tasting it. So we become you know, more apt to overindulge in something as we gain weight, which is totally totally fascinating um and and difficult for people to deal with but he was one of the first persons who suggested to me that look one of the one of the things we need to be thinking about here is how to change how we value food because we've been letting these companies tell us what to value food and so so for so long that when we go to starbucks and stand in front of the pastry case all we're kind of thinking about is that the moment of deliciousness when we eat that pastry and not, you know, what it's going to do to our bodies when we're sitting on the doctor's table, you know, 10 years from now. <laughs> and he's looking Gastro at, bypass. <laughs> well, exactly. Or, or even how we're going to look in a bathing suit, you know, the next, yeah. the next summer. And I, I think that's so fascinating, that question of can we now change how we value food? Yeah, it's funny. I just a week ago I started the Atkins diet, you know, the low carb diet, and I went out this morning before the show for coffee, and I was talking to the guy that runs the coffee shop around the corner, and he was saying, "Oh, you should try the Sherpa coffee." I said, "What's that?" He said, "Oh, well, that's what runners and marathoners are, are drinking now. It's black coffee with butter and coconut oil." <laughs> and so he he made me one just so I could try it. I thought it was horrible, um, but you know, it, it is a way to to avoid the carbs, I guess. Uh, which is a whole other a whole other conversation. All right, let's go to the phones. And again, it's 866-733-6786. Let's go to Elizabeth in Burlingame. Welcome. Hi there. Um, I'm a boomer geriatrician who back in the 70s had this thing for fast food burgers and um, donuts and those sorts of things. And so from my perspective, I see that, you know, the, the sizes of these foods have gotten much bigger that people are less physically active. And um, a friend of mine, along with um, Dr. Lessig, wrote a book, um, let's see, Fat Chance, uh, where they had someone teach middle school uh, students how to cook healthy, you know, with vegetables and such. So they actually had a sense. I mean, I think we need to relook at this as a society that um, – we need to introduce everyone to fruits and vegetables and help them understand what happens to their bodies and then get rid of this sugar lobby. Like, why the hell are we subsidizing sugar? We should be subsidizing fruits and vegetables um, and doing things to make make walking and biking easier, you know, kind of one of those nudge type things, yeah. um, as well as constricting, you know, the... Well, I don't know that you can constrict the size of stuff, but at least, you know, putting calories up there on the on the menu makes it a little easier. And, you know, going to Starbucks is an espresso with soy milk um, and oatmeal if I get it. So yeah. there, well, there are spaces. Yeah, I think some uh, some fast food companies have, have, you know, taken some time ago now to putting the calories up there. I'm not sure what impact that's having. But you mentioned, uh, Elizabeth, the subsidizing of sugar. And Michael Moss, uh, the government also subsidizes corn. And of course, corn syrup, which is used as a sweetener in soft drinks, is a 
big problem in terms of obesity, isn't it? Yeah, corn. You know, in, in part because corn syrup sort of dissolved more easily into soda, and so when they when they figured out that they could use syrup instead of, of you know sugar from sugarcane, that's actually when you saw soda consumption start to start to rise. But you know, but the cost of food and the inequity in that is is, is a huge factor in this. I mean, somebody well-meaning uh, or or meaning well by their family, by their own health, walking to the grocery store, you know, is confronted with the situation where a pint of fresh blueberries, especially off-season, can cost as much as a two-pound, three-cheese, four-meat frozen pizza that's going to feed the whole family. And the reason for that, in part, is because of the huge subsidies directly or indirectly or the huge amount of money some of it's a lot of it's coming from industry that's put into making ultra processed foods cheaper and cheaper and that's basically field corn um which goes into making um high fructose syrup and also soybeans so the staples of processed food get huge amounts of attention from the department of agriculture and from industry Whereas the things, you know, that nutritionists say we should be eating more of, all of the fruits and the vegetables get relatively very little um, research funding to yeah. make them less expensive and more available. Yeah. All right, Elizabeth, thanks so much. Uh, let's go now to Blanca up in Pengrove. Welcome. Actually, Bianca. Um, but Hi, my Bianca. question. Hi there. My question um, for the guest is about uh, his thoughts on moderation. Um, as a young woman, I am oftentimes told, you know, to not develop bad um, habits, you know, bad body image habits, and to just simply moderate my sugar intake. But we wouldn't really tell a heroin addict that they should moderate their, their heroin abuse. And if it's if sugar really is as addictive as I feel that it is, for some, it might simply just be easier to abstain completely. So I'm, I'm curious what uh, what he has to say about that. But I will also be getting the book. So thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks, Bianca. <laughs> uh, Michael? Um, yeah, yeah, I think that's a really good point because addiction happens on a spectrum, as you, as you learn. And so addiction experts who've been dealing with with people with a, with a drug addiction, you know, abstention is probably the most powerful tool that you have. Um, but again, that's one of the ways that food is even more problematic than drugs because you can't just stop eating. You can't go cold turkey on, on food. And you're confronted with whatever the trigger is that, that may affect you personally, whether it's sugar or fat or salt or what have you. Um, when you walk into the grocery store, you know, I went, but but you're absolutely right. So for many people with a food addiction um, or eating disorder, um, who are just lose or just lose control at a, at a you know with a bag of Oreos, and I should stop and say, you know, I spent time with the former chief counsel, general counsel of Philip Morris, the, the tobacco food manufacturer I was just talking about, um, Steve Parrish, and he said to me, you know, Michael, I was one of those people who could smoke one cigarette a day in a business meeting, put the pack away, and have no concerns or no impulse to smoke again until the next day. But I couldn't touch one of our bags of Oreo cookies for fear of losing control and eating <laughs> half the bag, right? Yeah, yeah. And so I think for people like him, abstention is the only way to do it. In fact, you know, I went to you know, I went to a food um, a food therapy group uh, with a source of mine in the food industry at Fort Mason. Um, where everybody stood up and said, "Hey, you know, hi, I'm 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 Joseph. I'm a food addict." They 
by and large, felt they couldn't touch a grain of sugar or refined starch without losing control. Wow. And and so for them, complete abstention was the only way they can yeah. they can do it. For for you know for the rest of us, you know, I, I I think we're looking at ways to sort of cut back on our over dependence on 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 these these processed food problem uh, mm-hmm. products and and find ways to. You know, use them rather than, you know, have them use us. Well, and you write in the book about how the packaging also contributes to the addiction. And I think you're writing about Oreos and how, you know, we don't even think about this, but they've designed a bag so that you can stick it on the front seat of the car while you're driving and it props up like, you know, flat, so you can just stick your hand in the bag without having to fuss with, you know, opening the bag. So they, they're really, you know, brilliantly facilitating your addiction and your ability to keep eating one after the other while you're driving. Yeah, and that goes back to exploiting our, you know, by nature addiction to things that are fast, right? So, you know, the, the food industry is all about creating products that are fast to make to keep the cost down, fast to sort of unwrap and unpackage, get your hands into fast to eat and then fast to hit the brain with that, that powerful reward signal. Here's a question from Aparna who writes, do home cooked foods fall under the addicted bucket? One silver lining of the pandemic for us was that we started cooking a lot more at home, including fries, ice cream, etc. While we don't make it every week or nearly as often as we'd have eaten it, if we ate out more, I've been feeling good about it since it's all homemade. But are we still addicted, even if these were all homemade? <laughs> Yeah, I love that question because, again, it sort of comes back to our nature. Yeah, we're addicted to food. We have to be addicted to food or we wouldn't eat. We'd starve to death, right? But but there's something about home-cooked meals that's just really, really powerful. And I think, I think part of it, if it's truly home-cooked, right, if you're just not unwrapping a package and throwing it in the oven, you're spending time with that food. And I think that process sort of slows you down gets the body and the brain, gives it some time to adjust to the notion that this food's coming in um, metabolically, how to deal with that. Um, but, but, but I think it's just much less of a problem in part because when we cook our own food, we're not using the massive amounts of salt, sugar, fat, for example, or even the massive amounts of, of convenience that gets engineered into these foods that the processed foods are. And so there's kind of like no way we can create a problem for ourselves like like the industry can. Yeah, you can control the amount of uh, sugar or salt, I suppose. But and, and also you point out that there are other artificial ingredients which can create and evoke certain emotions, which can also facilitate addiction. Yeah. And, and again, yes. Um, although, I, you know, I still think that salt, sugar, fat are kind of the you know, along with these other things like the cheapness and the variety and the calories and the and the you know and the convenience of these foods that 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 precipitate kind of mindless snacking on our parts. But but there are other ingredients that they use absolutely that that including I should mention um, sort of you know non sugar sweeteners which are now spreading throughout the grocery store in an attempt by the industry to respond to our concern about sugar um there are cocktails of these artificial or natural sweeteners that don't have calories and i have to say the science on what that does to our brain and the and, and the body is is not very good at this um at at this po- at this point and yet there you know it's a free-for-all in the grocery store and their ability to just kind of reformulate their products using using those um, those additives. Uh, let's go back to the phones and Michael in Oakland. And Michael, I'll ask you to keep it fairly concise because we're coming up on a break. 
<clears throat> okay, yeah. Um, so uh, I guess to make it really concise, um, I, I totally take your point, Mr. Moss, that uh, these foods, you know, can make be very compulsive for a lot of people and that that has huge societal costs in terms of obesity and diabetes and a lot of other health disorders. Um, at the same time, to, to really characterize these things as addictive seems to me to be a step too far. I mean, if you look at what people will do for alcohol or opiates or to a lesser extent cigarettes, I mean, there isn't the kind of physical withdrawal syndrome, although people might feel uncomfortable. Uh, people are not throwing away their jobs, alienating their families. They aren't being killed. They aren't being willing to pursue their disorder to the point of like acute death, although, you know, you yeah. might argue that, but, you know, Mike, 40 years but, of Yeah, diabetes. Michael, it's, uh, you know, there, there are all kinds of health consequences, though, even if they're short of death, right? Yeah, no, no, I get that point, too. And, and, and look, if, if you're more comfortable calling it a very, very bad habit than an addiction, <laughs> I'm, I'm totally fine with that. But I think that, that again, one of the key hallmarks of, of addiction is losing control. And, and if you look even at the obesity rate, we've now gone past 42% of American adults being clinically obese. And that was before the pandemic. Um, is, you know, that in itself is sort of a measure of losing control, maybe not in kind of the blind way that a heroin addict might pursue, you know, a, a new fix, but in a in a day to day to day loss of control over your eating habits that that I think from a public health standpoint is is much more significant and problematic um, than than a heroin. Addiction. Yeah. And of course, there's a reason they call it comfort food. It does bring us comfort sometimes. All right. We're going to take a short break and we'll come back with Michael Moss and talk more about his book Hooked. And if you'd like to join us, tell us uh, what are your food cravings and addictions? How has the pandemic changed your relationship to food? Give us a call at 866 866-733-6786 or reach us on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here today with Michael Moss. His new book is titled Hooked, Food, Free Will, and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. The number to call if you want to join the conversation, 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. And we've got some interesting comments here. Let me read one or two of them. Laura writes, my boyfriend has deeply ingrained poor eating habits. I can clearly see he has an addiction to sugar and fast food. I have a very healthy eye, she says. I have a very healthy diet and lifestyle, and no matter how much I try to tell him what he needs to do to eat better, he doesn't. He wants to change, but he does not seem to have the willpower to do it. Do you have any suggestions on how to get someone to change their eating habits? And that word, or at least that reference, free will, is is part of the title. Where does free will come into this? I think free will is is what disappears when you're confronted by these products. And and again, five years ago, if we were talking about this, I would have been one of those people who would have said, look, 
just have a little more willpower, self-control, executive <laughs> function. I mean, come on, really. But it's not a matter of that. I mean, again, it's, you know, you know, take the take the former general counsel, Philip Morris, who could like to, totally had tons of executive function going on in his life, but but would lose control over over Oreo cookies. I mean, these products are designed in a way to exploit our natural biology in a way that wipes out free will and self-control and, and personal responsibility for for many people, not everybody. And, and I think that's really important to understand is that addictive substances do not affect everybody the same way. Some people can smoke a cigarette a day. Some people can drink casually without losing control. Some people can use heroin casually, take it or leave it without having withdrawal symptoms um, not recommended. And, and use it recreationally. And look, I'm not advocating <laughs> that anybody do that, but as a, but, but I think it's important to understand that, you know, food affects people differently at different times of their lives. When we're stressed, we have certain vulnerabilities. And I think it's, I think it's probably misguided for us to look at that on their part as a, as a lack of willpower. And so when you get to solutions, right, I mean, the, the, that's, of course, the hardest part. And if someone has a really serious disorder, they're going to be going to they're going to be going to a doctor for the for the rest of us with something different. I think it comes back to, you know, trying to change what we value in food and, and looking at these food products differently and seeing mm. kind of the long term effects that they have in our health. When, when when we're confronted by that immediately, you know, mm. that immediate um, yeah. yumminess. Well, and maybe portion size is a good place to start too. You know, I think a lot of folks, even if they're eating good food, they just, we just eat too much of it because it's so good. And you know, you can't, you know, maybe eating a bag of Oreos isn't a good idea. Eat eat three. You know, start with that. Maybe cut back a little oh. bit. Well, you know, that reminds me the current uh, the current manufacturer of Oreo cookies just put out a video in order to help people who lose control eating Oreos. And one of their one of, I, I kid you not, you can find it on my website. I have a, I have it up there. But one of the suggestions was to put, you know, take a dinner plate, put three Oreos on it and then pick up one Oreo and don't eat the whole thing. Just try to nibble a bit of it and then put that that Oreo back on the plate. And, you know, my wife, Eve, is looking at me and going like, God, there's no way I could do that. But the irony, you know, that the processed food industry would be publishing a guide to help us, you know, lower our addiction to their products. I find like that's just like too rich. Well, and one of, you know, just on that in that regard, you write that uh, one major food company, I think it was Kraft, uh, even acquired diet brands like Weight Watchers and Lean Cuisine. So they're making money off you gaining and losing weight. I mean, that's pretty ingenious. Yeah, no, absolutely. It went back. Heinz was the first one, which which made, you know, which was using high fructose corn syrup but way back in the beginning for its ketchup. And, you know, Heinz bought the company or Ida and began making a, making a huge variety of frozen French fries, you know, according to their advertising. So you could turn your kitchen into a drive in restaurant. You didn't have to wait and get in the car and go to the restaurant. Um, it um, realized that people were overeating on processed foods and purchased none other than the most popular dieting method out there, Weight Watchers. And the rest of the industry noticed that and been buying, they began buying things like Slim Fast and South Beach Diet. And even Atkins was recently purchased by a company that produces, um, uh, that owns a lot of fast food brands. Um, yeah. So, 
So the, and then you saw even more importantly, though, you walked into the grocery store and you started to see diet versions of products all over the place. And so Hot Pockets would have sitting next to it in the in the in the in the, in the um, frozen frozen aisle lean pockets. Right. And we're supposed to stand there and decide which of those we could buy when really there isn't actually all that much difference. Between no. The two, nutritional. Yeah. No. All right. Let's go back to the phones and we're going to go up to Oregon, Portland, Oregon. Joseph, welcome. Hey, uh, what do you guys think of these alternative, um, you know, sugars and sweets? I'm not talking like the diet soda stuff, aspartame. We're talking about like the monk fruit, the stevia, the erythriol. Um, I have a dark chocolate addiction, and I have found that if I eat the chocolates made out of those sugars, the erythriol and the stevia, that my A1C, uh, it stays down. So I just want to know what you guys think about those sugars. <laughs> A1C. I'm not sure what that is. Is that your blood uh, glucose? Go ahead. Yeah, yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure either. But, um, but yes, yeah, it's a really interesting point. You know, look, I'm not a nutritionist and I'm not a scientist. I mean, what I hear from those people, though, is that if that works for you, then go for it. Um, and, you know, realizing that that may not work for everybody. But, but to go back to what I sort of said previously, one of the things that I think is disturbing is that the industry is adding both artificial and and, and um, natural calorie-free sweeteners to so many things in the grocery store that we really don't have. I don't think we have a good sense of how those 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 things are affecting us metabolically. Because think about it. I mean, you're, you're tasting something sweet in your mouth. Your brain is expecting it. Your gut is expecting calories. Those calories don't arrive metabolically. I just can't help but think that there may be some screwy things that, that happen as a result. Yeah. All right. Let's go back to the phones and let's go to Elisa in San Anselmo up in Marin County. Welcome. Yes, thank you. Um, I just want to say it took me about 10 years to work on my sugar addiction and I found some alternatives like the monk fruit and the stevia and I still eat a lot of fat. But recently for Easter, I bought a bag of Reese's um, peanut butter Easter eggs for my toddler a week early. And I eat the whole thing, so I don't think I don't think I can just uh, moderate. I have to abstain. Wow, that's powerful. Yeah, no, it you know for some people it is so powerful. I mean, I met a man up in Ottawa, Canada, who incredibly through huge amounts of executive function was able to lose 180 pounds, um, more than half of his weight. Got down to I think like 175. Um, but how how did he how did he do that? You know. Well, so he was incredibly lucky. He had a good job. He didn't have a family he had to worry about. He could totally focus all of his energy on losing that weight, which, again, so many people don't have the luxury of that. They get distracted by working two jobs or having, you know, kids to feed and deal with. And, and so and, and so they lose focus on their weight loss. But so he, by his own sort of acknowledgement, was incredibly fortunate to be able to totally focus on the weight loss. But but when he lost that weight, that's when the nightmare began for him, because his entire body was fighting against him, against his willpower to put that weight back on. And there were times he would have to put locks on his kitchen cabinets in mm. order to slow himself down. There were times when he would have to get on an intercity bus um, in order to avoid any possible contact with the food that he that he loved. I mean, that was the that was the power of 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 sort of his eating habits as they as they remained in his memory and in mm. his body. 
um, even after he lost the weight. Yeah. Some more listener comments here. Kent tweets, six ounces of organic blueberries cost five ninety nine this morning at the market, a dollar an ounce. Yeah, blueberries are pretty great. Uh, and Ali writes, or Ali writes, what about the nutritional value on the quote-unquote healthy school lunches our kids are offered? I've worked the school lunch service at my school, and it appears the nutrition is mostly in the a la carte fruits and veggies, which a lot of kids pass over. They eat the salt, sugar, fat-laden entree if they don't call it disgusting and toss it out. And go, and off they go. Don't get me started on what I see them eating at snack time. And, you know, a few years ago, Michael, there was a whole um, dust up over, uh, you know, Coke machines, vending machines uh, in schools, yes. which, you know, of course, yes. these food companies would put in for free and maybe even let the schools have the money, right? It was just sort of a way of uh, mainlining Coca-Cola and chips. You know, Coca-Cola, in, in my first book, Salt Sugar Fat, I wasn't even going to write about Coca-Cola. And then I spent time with the former president of Coca-Cola for North America, South America. He walked me through all the things that the company does to um, to sort of get in our heads with Coca. But one of the things they, they realize is that they can get a Coke in the hands of a kid who goes to a ballpark with his or her parents. You know, that will forever sort of associate that Coca-Cola, that soda with that joyous moment. And so the food companies are all about associating their products with joyous moments in our lives and sort of taking control of those moments um, and to create sort of brand loyalty and product loyalty. And so that's, that's, that's what was going on with those Coke machines in the schools. Talking with Michael Moss, author of Hooked Free Will, I'm sorry, Food Free Will and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. If you want to join us, it's 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. And let's go to San Francisco now. And Ivan, you're next. Welcome. Oh, okay. Thank you for taking my call. Um, a comment and a question. Um, 12 years ago, I was diagnosed with a pre-diabetic condition as a lacto-ovo um, vegetarian. I was surprised that that happened. So I went to an endo. He gave me some drugs. They didn't work. So I changed my lifestyle and became a transition to veganism. And I had to start reading labels because there are so many carbs and so many foods that you don't realize exist, which what I learned from the dietitian was that carbs convert to sugar. And if you're not watching your carb intake, it will spike your blood sugar. So um, my question is, um, how do you feel about veganism as a sustainable plant-based diet? And... Um, well, I, Ivan, let me just let me just ask a question. How do you avoid carbs as how, how do you avoid carbs as a vegan? I mean, there's like, I mean, obviously, there are some foods like, you know, tofu and but even like nuts and legumes. Everything has carbs, but I'm talking about refined carbs like, you know, breads and sugars and, uh, you know, like uh, pastas and things like that, which I just had to cut out of my diet because I was eating way too much of it as a lacto-ovo um, vegetarian. I have to read labels and, you know. It's a pain in the butt, but I had to do it. And I even had to cut some, uh, uh, like, uh, oranges out of my diet because they're very high in, in carbs as well. But it's a natural carb and it's a natural fructose, so it wouldn't spike my blood sugar like um, refined sugar. Yeah. So that's that's the way I deal with it. Michael, I'm what... what curious about, I'm sorry. Sorry to yeah. cut off. Yeah. Well, I think you wanted to ask him about plant-based diets, yeah. 
Yeah, no, and you know, my answer is kind of the same we talked about before. If it works for you, I think that's fabulous. Um, you know, I would be careful preaching it to other people because it may not work for, for, for everybody. And, and a part of me also is, I mean, I, I think it's somewhat sad that we have to pay so much attention to what we eat as a result of these decades of, of kind of becoming dependent on the food companies and letting them tell us what we should eat. I mean, it would just be so great if we didn't have to pay attention to food, um, yeah. in, you know, and, 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 you know, in, in this fashion of, of focusing on it because it's affecting our, our health. So, so, so dramatically, but, but if veganism works for you, that's, I think it's fantastic. All right, let's go back to the phones and how about, let's see here. Chelsea in Point Reyes, welcome. Hello. I have a very specific question about an addictive product, and that is Girl Scout cookies. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's addiction here, for a good cause. <laughs> uh, I was a Girl Scout, and I've always supported the Girl Scouts. I've noticed on the boxes that there are hydrogenated oils, and I've heard those are terribly... Um, uh, disruptive to our di digestive tract, and, and we can't process these oils. But I wondered if there were any studies around the addictive quality of hydrogenated oils, or if that's just a shelf life thing, and if you knew anything about that, because I just can't put them down once I start <laughs> eating them. <laughs> you know, it could be the sugar, it could be the, it could be the fat, kind of generally. I mean. One of the frustrating things for me as, as, a, as a journalist is how little science there is on these subjects we're talking about. It was only in 2019 that a scientist at the NIH finally did the very first clinical trial looking at the question, does ultra-processed food you know, make us gain weight? And indeed, he took two groups of people you know, put them in the eating lab for a couple of weeks, uh, fed one group, you know, natural, wholesome food and the other, you know, grocery store products. And lo and behold, the ultra processed food group gained weight. That was the very first time that there was clinical proof that processed food is a problem for us. But but what's still lacking is the, is the question, why? What about it? Is it the texture? Is it the lack of fiber? Is it the lack of water? in these products what is it about them that causes us to overeat and and we still don't know that and it's it's probably different for different people chelsea do you have a favorite flavor girl scout cookie <laughs> yeah it's called the samoa and it's just beyond like it's so good it's got coconut <laughs> it's got caramel chocolate and a cookie in there and i could eat the whole box and then i wow. have a for guilty complex. I don't even have a sweet tooth. I'm a salty dog. <laughs> Those, cookies. Those cookies make me nuts. Yeah. So well, I wait, wondered, so Scott, what the heck is in there? Yeah. But but Scott, didn't I notice in your Twitter Twitter handle the word chocolate? I think you're you're Oh uh, yeah. <laughs> yes, you did. No, I'm a, I definitely love chocolate. But, you know, I, I do tend to go for the dark chocolate, which I think is a marginally better. And also, I don't like sweet chocolate particularly, although, you know, I won't pass up a truffle or a caramel. But, you know, I, I, I think that there are you know, not all chocolate is created equally. Right, Michael? Give me a right. break here. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and so... I'd love to tell the chocolate in the brain scan study if you story. Go for it, yeah. If you will. It was Dana Small, um, a self-described, uh, the scientist I mentioned earlier who's, who's, who's now at Yale and looks at this whole 
kind of food environment we're in from an evolutionary standpoint, um, so much so that she named her own son Darwin. Um, <laughs> but but she was the first person who discovered how to look at the brain on food, being a self-described chocoholic. Because normally when you go into the brain scanner, you can't chew because that that, that blurs the, the imagery, right? But she realized that she put her subjects in the scanner and put a little square of chocolate on their tongue. It would melt, especially milk chocolate. It would melt in their mouth without them having to chew. And she could observe how that stimulates certain parts of the brain, which was just totally um, ingenious on her on her part. Yeah. Real quickly, we only have about 30 seconds left. But, you know, it's just it's interesting that one of the um, side effects of COVID is the loss of smell and taste. Uh, and I'm wondering if there's, you know, anything to be learned from that as it relates to all of this in terms of yeah, how it changes the- our eating, our eating patterns. Yeah, I spent time with a famous chef and writer, Paul Wilford, who who tragically began getting Alzheimer's. And when she did, she lost her sense of taste and smell because those are embedded in memory. And that's, that's, again, one of the ways that these food products are more problematic than drugs and alcohol and food is that we begin building memory for food at a very early age, possibly even in the womb. And when we lose that memory for whatever reason, um, then... You know, it's right. it's it's our whole relationship to food changes. Yeah. All right. We got to go. I beg your pardon for interrupting there. Michael Moss's new book is called Hooked Food, Free Will and How the Food Giants Exploit Our Addictions. Fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. I'm Scott Schaefer and stick around for another hour of Forum with Mina Kim. They're going to be talking about the Supreme Court. Thanks for listening. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Germanicos Foundation and the Generosity Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.